The reading this morning is from Acts chapter 16. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1112. 1112. And we're starting at verse 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Paul and Silas in prison. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. 
he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, lovely to see so many of you here. If I can just add my, my welcome to uh, the choir. Quite a lot of new faces, I think, as I'm squinting out at everybody. Um, really lovely to see you here with us. Um, 17th of February, 2018. If that date rings a bell with anybody. I know it rings a bell with at least a couple of people in this room. Uh, that was a really significant, special day. 17th of February, 2018. I hope I've got the date written down here right now. Uh, it was a special day because it was Jean-Marc and Becky. Where are you, Jean-Marc and Becky? Jean-Marc and Becky's wedding day. Have I got the date right, JM? Brilliant. It was Jean-Marc and Becky's wedding day. Uh, Kath and I were invited. We were there at the church in Swansea um, for the service and hearing them make their vows to one another. It was a really significant day, but it was a, a significant day and a memorable day for me, no offense, Jean-Marc and Becky, for another reason, and that was, you, you probably don't remember this date. You must have a very good memory if you do. The other thing that happened on 17th of February 2018 was that in Cumhlinveth, which is about 10, 12 miles north of Swansea, there was a 4.4 magnitude uh, earthquake. So I remember, I'm pretty sure it was while Jean-Marc and Becky were saying the vows, I'm not sure which one of them was speaking at that moment, the church rumbled. I thought, because we were near the train station, a very heavy goods train had gone past or a big lorry had gone past the church. So I thought, that's, that's a lot of rumbling for a lorry or for a train. But actually, it was an earthquake, which happened in the vows. I mean, how incredible is that? So it was a significant day for those two reasons. Jean-Marc and Becky got married, and I experienced my first earthquake. In world terms, that wasn't a big earthquake, but it was certainly very significant for me. It's very appropriate because very appropriate that that earthquake marked that special day. Because in the Bible, earthquakes often mark times of real significance. When you read through your Bible, what you find is that often when there's an earthquake, when the, the ground trembles, God is doing something. And that's exactly what happened on this day in the account that Diana read out to us. God was doing something. It would be a memorable day for that jailer. You know, we, we heard about Paul and Silas being thrown into prison. And the jailer, the man who ran the prison, it was going to be a very significant day for him. And this earthquake marked it. In fact, in a sense, this earthquake caused it. Because after this day, after today, his life, this jailer, would, would never be the same again. And it all had begun with two unusual prisoners. Four things I want to highlight. And the first thing is these two unusual prisoners. Why were they there? Why were they there in the inner cell? Well, because they'd been proclaiming a disruptive and powerful message. I mean, immediately, the, the reason they got in trouble was that they'd cured a slave girl, as we heard read to us. The owners of the slave girl got mad and took Paul and Silas to the authorities. But the thing they accused Paul and Silas of, and the thing that stuck, was that Paul and Silas had been proclaiming this disruptive message about this person called Jesus Christ. So they were unusual because they'd been proclaiming this message. Or to put it another way, they were unusual because they were Christians. I mean, this jailer must have been an experienced man. He must have seen all sorts. He must have been quite a hard, I would have thought, and toughened man. And yet these prisoners stood out to him because they were Christians. That was, I don't know if you know that, but the Christian was a word that was conjured up to make fun of Christians. It was meant to be derogatory, but it's a word that stuck because Christians are Christians. They're people who believe in and follow Jesus Christ. And that's why these two were different. The other reason these two were different, as you 
look at the text, this is what you see, is that they weren't groaning, they were singing. About midnight, it's in the middle of the night as well, midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. I find that interesting. The other prisoners were listening. They, I would imagine if this happened in a prison normally, be, shut up, I want to sleep. But all we hear is, no, they were listening. There was something powerful about this. And one of the things that was powerful was they were singing, which is incredible when you think about what had happened to them. Earlier in the account, we read that as they appeared before the authorities, they were seized, they were dragged, they were stripped, they were beaten, and they were thrown into the inner cell. And then we read that their feet were fastened in the stocks. So they're there in this dank, presumably, and dark inner cell, recovering from their wounds that they'd received in the beating and the flogging, their feet fastened in the stocks. And what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing. Um, to be honest, the, the prayer bit I get, because if that had been me, I'd have been praying. Lord, why on earth am I here? Lord, please get me out of this prison cell as quickly as you can. But the implication seems to be here. They may have been praying, Lord, can you get us out of prison? But the, the main thing they're praying is prayers of praise. That's what's obvious because they're singing songs of praise to go with the prayers. How on earth can they do this? The, the early church father, an ancient historian, um, sorry, a theologian called Tertullian, talking about Paul and Silas having their feet fastened in the stocks, put it this way, the legs feel nothing when the heart is in heaven. Because that's what was true for them. Their legs felt nothing because their hearts were in heaven. Their lives had been so transformed, you see, by believing this message about Jesus that adverse circumstances and pain and suffering couldn't eradicate that deep joy that was in their hearts and lives. Now, a lot of people in this room know about this. doesn't mean you feel this joy bubbling up all the time. Sometimes it bubbles up for unaccountable reasons like it did for Paul and Silas in that prison cell. But what a Christian knows, a follower of Christ knows, is that there is that deep joy that cannot be taken away. The joy that we've been singing about already this morning. And this was the case for Paul and Silas. This can be the experience of the believer in Jesus whatever the prison cell, if you like, they find themselves in, because his or her heart is in heaven. So this man saw these two prisoners, and he knew that they were like no other prisoners he'd seen before. But you know, meeting the two prisoners was just the start of the chain of events that would change this jailer's life and make this the most remarkable day in his life. That's just the first thing. The second thing we see is a providential earthquake. Now, you might wonder, uh, regularly here, you might wonder why I just said providential rather than miraculous. Uh, there is a reason for that. I, my understanding of the word miraculous is that it means when God, when the Lord Jesus in his ministry, for example, did something that was kind of reversing or overturning the laws of nature. Things happened in this world that don't normally happen that way. I'm not using the word miraculous for this earthquake because earthquakes happen. And they certainly happened apparently quite regularly and do happen quite regularly in this part of the world. But I call it providential because providence means when God in his sovereignty just overrules in the, the normal, ordinary things of life to bring about his purposes. And that's exactly what happened with this earthquake. It was a providential earthquake. Yeah, earthquakes happened. 
But God arranged for the earthquake to just happen to happen at the moment that Paul and Silas were praying their prayers and singing their songs and the jailer was there ready for what was about to happen. So the earthquake comes, the building shakes, the structural integrity of the building is damaged, the doors by the sound of things burst, the shackles that the prisoners are attached to are ripped off the walls I assume and the prisoners are free to go. Now, when you read through the Bible, what you find is that God often frees his people amazingly, providentially, miraculously. He's certainly done it before in the book of Acts. But this quake, it turns out, isn't primarily allowed by God, sent by God to free Paul and Silas. No, it's not primarily for that. This earthquake is sent to free the jailer. Because you see, up until this moment, the jailer was in prison himself and didn't realize it. And this earthquake was going to set him free. I mean, this jailer's got a job. We find out a bit later in the account he's got a family. But what's really obvious as we read through the account, and this is the case of everybody who comes into contact with a message about Jesus, is that there's something missing in his life. That there's a deep, deep need that this divine earthquake is going to show him. You see, God sends, if I can put it this way, God sends quakes of different sorts He allows quakes of different sorts into the lives of his people, sometimes to help them, sometimes to strengthen them. And also God allows quakes sometimes to make people who aren't his people yet into his people, which is what's going to happen here. Um, I've been starting to read, uh, because Kath has been um, nudging me to, a great book recently, God of All Things by Andrew Wilson. And it has chapters on um, things like random things you might think like dust, Pigs, tools, galaxies, stones, honey, mountains. And there's a one on earthquakes. And here's a a snippet from his chapter on earthquakes. Listen to this. When people encounter the true God, they experience a self-quake. That's one way you can tell if you've met Israel's God or simply a figment of your imagination. A made-up God will leave your world undisturbed conveniently aligning with all your priorities without displacing anything because ultimately you are more glorious than it is, whatever your God is. The real God, however, will land in the middle of your life like an elephant crashing through the ceiling, displacing your sin, changing all your priorities and forcing you to reorient yourself around the weight of glory. God uses quakes in the lives of his people and he also uses quakes to make people into his people, to show them the weight of his glory, his godness, his realness, his reality. And that manifestation of glory and power leads to the next link in the chain of this jailer's greatest day, a most significant day in his life. Because the third thing we see and we hear here is the most important question he's ever asked. The the most important question he's ever come up with. He's about to to kill himself. That might seem extreme to you. You know, the, the, the building's just been shaken, the shackles have come off the walls, the doors are open, the prisoners can escape. He thinks the prisoners have escaped because if that was him, that's what he'd do. And he's about to kill himself. We're told he's drawn his sword, presumably from the inner cell. Paul and Silas can see the silhouette of the jailer about to kill himself. And... 
if you think that's over the top, it's because in that shame on a culture, this was a shameful thing that he had, had, he had allowed his prisoners to escape. It was also the case that probably he would have received severe punishment for this, possibly even a death sentence. So that's why he's about to kill himself. And just before he plunges the sword into his own body, Paul shouts out, don't do it, we're all still here. I got no idea why the other prisoners were still there. I can only imagine that because of the authority that Paul and Silas were exercising, and because the other prisoners had seen all this too, they were probably stood there rooted to the spot wide-eyed themselves. But they're all still there. So instead of making the greatest mistake of his life, as he hears Paul's voice, the jailer asks the greatest and most important question of his life. The most important question he's asked. One of the most important questions I would say any human being can ask. And the question is, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What's going through his head? Well, we're not, we're not told for sure. We, we know what Paul and Silas are going to say to him. We can't be sure what's going through his head, but probably he's not saying, what must I do to be physically saved from the consequences of this? Because his prisoners are still there. He's presumably not going to face punishment. He's amazed that they're still hanging around. So it's probably not saying, he's probably not saying, what must I do to be physically kept safe? Because he's okay. It seems more likely to me that when he asks that question, what's going through his head is this. He has seen and heard two men praising their God in this darkest cell, whilst their wounds weep from the beating they've taken, and he's heard them pray these otherworldly prayers, and he's heard them sing these songs of praise that they clearly mean, and at the moment their songs are reaching their peak, this earthquake has happened that has released them, and yet they're still there. I can only think that what's going through his head is that God that they've been praying to and singing to is real. And he's not just real like he's one of the gods. He's real and he's powerful. He's great. How can I be saved from him? How can I stand in this God's presence? What must I do to be saved? Whatever exactly is going through his head, it's clear that eternal and supernatural realities are beginning to break into his life. Friends, you cannot ask a more important question, I don't think, than this question. What must I do to be saved? You might think, well, I don't need to be saved, I'm fine. But when you start considering eternal realities, what you see in the Bible is that's not true. None of us are fine before this great and awesome God. What's Paul and Silas's answer? I love this. I mean, if... You can imagine today, if the question had been asked, uh, what must I do to be saved in the 21st century UK, you might get some people saying, well, what you need to do is you be true to you. You look in deep inside and you find your truth. You be the best version of you you can be, jailer, and you'll eventually be okay. Paul and Silas would never say anything like that because they knew the answer was not within Probably more likely in that context in those days, you would have expected an answer from two Jews, something like this. Well, what you need to do to be saved before this, this great and this powerful and this holy God is work harder at being good. Work harder at being righteous. Keep the Ten Commandments better than you've been keeping them. And then hopefully on the day when you see this God face to face, you'll be okay. You might have expected an answer like that from someone who was a Pharisee by training like Paul. But that's not what Paul and Silas say. 
No, the stunningly, stunningly counterintuitive, countercultural response to the question, what must I do to be saved, is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The one we've just been singing about, the one jailer that you've probably heard a bit about because he's the reason we were imprisoned, this Jesus, believe in him and you will be saved. We then read that they explained this to the jailer and to his household. By the way, his household are mentioned here. Um, We haven't got time to go into this now. Maybe Dave and I will on another occasion. But what I firmly believe here is that the household are baptised because the household have joy in Jesus, because the household have this word proclaimed to them, and they believe it. But the main focus here is on the jailer. The jailer and his family have the word of the Lord spoken to them. In other words, the the tweetable answer to the question is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then if the jailer was wondering, yeah, but what on earth does that mean? Well, they went on to explain to him what that means. And the New Testament and the Acts of the Apostles in particular help us understand what that word of explanation they gave is. Basically, they would have said, they would have explained to him who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They would have rolled the Christmas message and the Easter message in together and explained it to this jailer in the time that they had. Who is Jesus? Jesus isn't just the carpenter from Nazareth, though he is, and he is a real man. No, Jesus is God, the eternal son, who 30-odd years ago came to this world and became a human being. Why? Well, here's where we get to the what of what Jesus had done. He did it so that he could die on a cruel Roman cross. Paul and Silas would have said, to, to deal with my sin, to deal with my evil, to deal with my separation from God, to deal with the fact that I want to live my life on my terms and be God of my own life and turn my back on this good and great and holy God. He died on the cross to deal with that, to pay for it, to take away my sins. The explanation would have been something along those lines, wouldn't it? And however long that conversation was, I don't know. What I do know is this, that as the jailer hears that message, he believes it's true, he trusts that it's true, and he trusts in this Jesus. He doesn't trust, the jailer doesn't trust now in his own goodness or his, or his household gods or whatever he might have been tempted to trust in. I don't know what you're tempted to trust in. To know that one day, if there is an eternity, you'll be okay. That Well, listen, there is an eternity and there's nothing and no one else you can trust in except this Jesus. He trusts in Jesus. And in that moment, he is saved. His heart is healed. And he is right with this God. And he has a joy springing up in his heart that probably doesn't even fully understand yet, but it's there because he's trusted in this Jesus. And now, you see, we're getting towards the end of our story this morning and the end of this account, but actually, this jailer's story was just starting. But there's one more significant thing that happens that day, which is one of the reasons I wanted to preach on this passage this morning. And it's this, that the fourth and last thing we see in this passage is a vivid symbol. A vivid symbol. As as the jailer is hearing this message and believing it, and as he is giving himself, if you like, to this saviour, Jesus, almost as he's doing it, it appears, this is a lovely picture, he's washing their wounds. 
They'd have had some nasty wounds from the beating they'd received. And this jailer, whose job previously was just to chuck him into the cell and keep them there, has taken them home and he's bathing their wounds. He's washing these men. And as he's washing their wounds and believing this message, God is washing him. Totally clean. Jesus is washing him totally clean in the eyes of God. And then what happens? Because there's more washing to happen. Then they wash him. Did you catch that towards the end of the passage? At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. You're wondering what that word baptized means? You're about, you're about to see in a little bit. They were washed with water. I I don't know how. I don't know if there was a fountain on the premises or if they used buckets of water or what. I don't know. But I know that Paul and Silas washed him. Washed him and his family who believed. What was happening as they were doing that? Were they washing his sins away? Nope. Because by the time he got into the water or had the water poured on him or whatever, by the time that happened, his sins were washed away. It was done. So why baptize him? Why plunge him in water? Because that baptism was a sign that he was a follower of Jesus and a sign that his sins had been washed away. That's what baptism is. Jesus said to his disciples right towards the end of his earthly ministry, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's saying, go and make disciples, go and tell people this message so that they believe and once they believed, baptize them wash them in water so this man did or rather had done to him what these boys are going to do say boys i mean they're gonna be towering over me in the pool these young men are going to do in just a few minutes they are going to submit to baptism in obedience to the command of jesus and they're submitting to baptism to show that jesus is their lord and savior and they are being washed if you like the water is pretty clean they are being washed to show that their sins have been washed away. They haven't done it. Jesus has done it all. And that's what this is going to show. They are saying as they go through these waters exactly what the jailer said. I am clean now. I am saved because of Jesus and because of his cross. They're saying as they go under the water, in effect, I have died to my old self. And when they come up, they're saying I have risen to new life in Jesus. And I have real joy and hope. They're saying that when in the future I face dark prison cells, I'm in that inner place and it's dark and circumstances are hard and I'm struggling and I'm frankly not happy. They're saying, I know that Jesus is mine and I am his and this deep joy in my heart cannot be taken away and he will not let me go. They're saying all these things as they go through the waters of baptism. Time and again in Acts, faith leads to this weird and wonderful witness where someone goes to the water and says, I have come to Jesus in faith. He has changed my life by his death. He has saved me. He has washed me. How can I not confess that by doing this? How can I not follow him? And my question, friends, for all of us this morning is, have we done this? Have we realized that to be saved To know true and deep and lasting joy, we need Jesus and we need to come to him as saviour. You don't need to do anything as such for that to happen except in the quietness of your own mind and heart say, 
I believe in you, Lord Jesus. I want you to be my Lord and Saviour. I give my life to you. Please forgive my sins and be my Lord. I mean, please tell someone if you're doing that right now. Please come and talk to one of us up the front. Come and pray with us. But you can do that right now. And let me just ask you, if you're a Christian, if you've done that maybe a long, maybe a long time ago and you haven't been baptised, then can I just say to you what we read elsewhere in Acts, another good question that was asked, what prevents me, what prevents you from being baptised? Believe and be baptised. Believe and be baptised. That's what we read again and again in Scripture. If you know that this Jesus is yours and you've believed, then please come and talk to me about being baptised. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, the living God, who, were, who was in that inner cell with Paul and Silas, thank you that you are here now with us this morning. Thank you that for those who are struggling and suffering and do feel they're in the dark, that when they know Jesus, then, then despite those, t- those terrible circumstances, they can know you with them. And I pray that deep joy they already have in Jesus would well and bubble up within them this morning. I pray for those here this morning, Lord, who might be in a dark and difficult place, who don't yet know Jesus, that, uh, that if you are starting to shake their heart and shake their life, that even right now they would want to come to him as Saviour and Lord. They may not understand it all yet. They may not understand everything, but they just realise they need this Jesus. Lord, bring them to you to trust in you right now. And Lord, we pray also for, for Daniel and for David, that you'll be just preparing their hearts for what they're going to do now, In one sense, there's not much that they need to do except simply stand in that pool and be obedient and be baptised. But they're doing it because they follow you, Jesus. And so we pray that they would know a real blessing and a real sense of the joy of the Holy Spirit welling up in them even as they're baptised. We thank you, Lord, that you're here with us. We thank you for your wonderful word. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom when people believe they can know they are saved. Amen.